0: Tonight as we come, this Monday, Thursday, that word Monday comes from the Latin word for commandment, the commandment given by our Lord on that final night when he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Therefore, it was a commandment of love. To love, Jesus said, just as I have loved you. And Jesus demonstrated that love in more than just words or speech, but in actions and in truth, knowing that there is no greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Tonight, as we contemplate that laying down of his life, we know that that was not a passive act. It was a very active one. Jesus poignantly demonstrated that on that Thursday night of Passion Week, when he set aside his outer garments, girded himself with a towel, the garment of a servant, pouring water into a basin and washing the feet of his disciples. If you read that account in John's Gospel, he details every action of it. It is as if all of it was etched into his mind. Because here is the Lord of glory, the Word made flesh, taking the form of a servant, performing the service of a servant, and the lowest of the low servants, that of the foot washer. Why did he do this? Well, it was not just because the disciples needed their feet washed. He did not do this just as an example, although that was a part of it. But it was to be symbolic of what was going to take place just hours later. That his crucifixion, likewise, was a willing sacrifice. It was willing service that he was willing to perform Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that we celebrated just this last Sunday, not ignorantly, but willfully, knowing what was ahead of him. He entered into the garden of Gethsemane on this night, pleading with his father with drops of blood pouring down from his brow to let this cup pass from him, but not my will, but yours be done, was his prayer. He was willing to submit to the father's the laying down of his very life. In fact, he said even beforehand, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. And so as we think about that love and that sacrifice, how should we respond? Well, Our response should be that which we meditate upon this night as we meditate upon the passion and the crucifixion and death of our Lord. And I want to do so from a very familiar text and that of Galatians 2.20, and specifically of what it means to be crucified with Christ. Christ. Paul says, "There, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me." This is a verse that we know well, perhaps even too well, meaning that it has become so familiar to us that it has lost some of its impact, its punch. But I want us to look at it tonight with fresh eyes, with a fresh heart, with a new mind, and ask that the Lord would give newness to it. Because I tell you that there are few greater life-changing verses than this. Pastor Steve Lawson says this about this verse. It's not that some verses are more inspired, for every verse in the Bible is equally inspired. But there are those verses in the Bible that stand out like stars in the night, that contain such a succinct statement of truth that they are so profound, so pungent, that they seem to reach higher and say more than other verses. They are like an acorn that contains an entire forest within it, just waiting to be unleashed, like a seed that contains an entire harvest within it, such is Galatians 2.20. And so I pray that the Lord would use this verse tonight and be germinating in our hearts and our minds over the next several days as we look forward to Easter and that resurrection morning. If you'd first look at the beginning of this verse, I have been crucified with Christ. The death and passion account that we heard earlier that was read to us is more than just a historical account. It's more than just dry facts of an incident that took place over 2,000 years ago. Nor should we think of it as just merely a tragedy or an example of gross injustice in the legal or the religious system of that day, although that would be very true. That does not give sufficiency to this story, to this account, because it does not get at the heart of the crucifixion of Christ. It does not apply it to us personally. It does not make that bridge of time from 2,000 years ago to us this night. The reality is that there should be in this reading, the reading of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that as we hear it, even though we've heard it again and again and again, there is very real and raw sense that it becomes new and it becomes fresh to us once again. That we personally experience this tragedy, this turmoil, this passion of our Lord presently, this very night. Not just emotionally, but surely there are emotions. But much more, there's a spiritual connection between what took place then and us Now, Because if there is not that, I would say to you that I do not believe that you understand the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is not about a incident or tragedy or death. We should see this as the incident, the tragedy, the death of all time. And even go further to say this is my incidents, my tragedy, my death. And that is exactly what Paul is saying in this verse when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. He's not saying that he was just there physically present at Calvary some 20 years earlier when Jesus was crucified because most likely he was not there. Nor can we say that he is just saying that his present trials and tribulations are somehow equal to Christ's crucifixion. Nor can we say that at some point he was literally nailed to a cross because otherwise he would not be saying this at all because he would be dead. Because no one recovered from crucifixion. It had only one outcome. And that of death. And yet that is exactly what Paul is saying. That when Christ died, he, Paul, died too. That Paul, the man, the sinful man, the one who said that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All that he prided himself in, all that he saw that made him in his eyes right with God, that is the one in whom was crucified, that died. That day that he encountered the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, that encounter with the Lord brought with it death. And it is the same encounter in which we have when we come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is in that moment that we recognize that I am not just a good person in my own eyes or I'm as good as the next person or even better than most. It is not how I see myself or how I see myself in the light of others. It is who I am in the eyes of God. Because in the eyes of a righteous, holy God, I am a law breaker. And that is what Paul is trying to drive home to the people of Galatia when he writes of this, what he writes not only in Galatians 2.20, but in the entirety of his epistle, that he is saying something that is really quite radical. What he is saying to the Judaizers and to those that would see themselves as Jews would sound extremely radical in their ears. He is saying to them that the law condemns you. It does not justify you. That the law leads to death, not to life. In fact, if you look just the verse prior to this, he says, for through the law, I died to the law. Or you could even say that through the law, I died with law the law. You hear what Paul is saying. He's saying that the law does not make you right. In fact, it shows your wrongs and just how wrong you are. See, the law is a reflection of the righteousness of God. And in my flesh, I do not reflect the righteousness of God. I do not reflect it in my heart. I do not reflect it in my life. I do not reflect it in my body or in my soul. None of it. Rather, in every instance, I reflect the unrighteousness that condemns me. And so, therefore, the law is a mirror. And the picture that reflects back to us is not a pretty one at all. And so you can see how radical this is, not only in the eyes and ears of the Jews, not only in the eyes and the ears of the Judaizers, but how radical this is, even in Paul's own life, how radically he has changed. This is a 180 degree change in the life of Paul, because as he said previously, if anyone had reason to boast, he could boast, because he far exceeded them all. But now understanding the law correctly, he says that he is less than less. In fact, he goes on to say that he is the least. You see the radical change in the life of the Apostle Paul to thinking that he is the greatest, the one that can boast and boast as righteous in the eyes of man and even in the eyes of God to saying that he has no boast whatsoever, that he is the very least of all of mankind. He is, in fact, the chief of sinners. Why is it that Paul can see this? Because he really sees himself rightly. He sees himself as a condemned man with no defense, without an answer, and guilty as charged. And so therefore, he can say that he now has been crucified with Christ, that he has experienced a death. He has experienced a physical and spiritual death in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think about why Christ was crucified, what was the reason that was given by those that sentenced him? It was because. He was deemed, wrongfully so, but nevertheless, he was deemed as a lawbreaker. And yet, we know from the life of Christ that he was not a lawbreaker, that they were lawbreakers, that the Jews were the lawbreakers, that Herod was the lawbreaker, that Pilate was the lawbreaker, that I was the lawbreaker, that you were the lawbreaker, but not he but here it is that we truly understand the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That Christ took my place, my rightful place, my rightful condemnation, my rightful punishment, His agony, His suffering, His death. That was ours. It was done for us. And yet the the question the perpetual question, the question perhaps all of eternity we will be asking is why? Why would he be willing to do such a thing? Why would he be willing to take our place? Why would he take our punishment for such a worm as I? Well, first and foremost, he did it because the Lord commanded him. His father commanded him to do so. And so he was doing it for the glory of God. That is the first reason. But second, and equally as important, he was willing to do it for the redemption of humanity. And that is why the father would not answer his request. That the cup, the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment, the cup of, of condemnation would not pass from him. And it is why the son was willing to drink that cup to the very dregs, because there was no other way that you and I could be saved. His passion was poured out because he had his children in mind, Listen to what Isaiah chapter 53 says, that suffering servant passage that we know so well, but oftentimes we only focus on the beginning of the chapter. We do not hear what it says at the end. It says this, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. His soul was to be made an offering for guilt, and yet he shall see his offspring and prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Do you hear what that prophecy is saying? He would be crushed as the guilt offering. He would bear their iniquities, your iniquities, my iniquities, that the righteous one, the the righteous Christ, my servant, he is called, will make many to be accounted righteous. And as a result, the Father shall look upon that suffering and be satisfied. Children and youth, let me try to illustrate it to you this way. Recently, we received a a wonderful and beautiful and gracious gift from several within this church. It came in the form of, of gift cards. Perhaps you've gotten gift cards before. Well, how do gift cards work? Well, in this instance, and in any instance where there is a gift card, someone took money from their own bank accounts, money that they had earned, money that they had worked hard for. And they applied that money to that card. In this case, that card that they gave to us as a gift. And so we readily received that gift with thankfulness. We didn't just treat it as nothing, like it was invaluable and just throw it away. No, we knew that that card, even though it's just a, a flimsy piece of plastic, had value to it. And so what do you do with gift cards? Well, you take them to the store, right? And that is what we did. We went to the store and we picked out some, some beautiful items. And there at that checkout, we, we gave them the, the gift card, those at the, the register. We gave the store that gift card. And what did they do with that card? Did they look at it and say, wait a second, you can't use this. That's not your money. You have not earned it. You have not worked for it. No, they took what was accounted to us, what was given to us from another, and they applied it to us. And as a result, the The store was satisfied. They allowed us to leave the store without arresting us with taking these wonderful and beautiful gifts. Now, did we buy those items? Well, no, not in the sense that we used our money. Rather, it was a gift given to us. See, we got the benefits at the cost of someone else at someone else's expense. That's perhaps a very crude and transactional way of putting it, but it does illustrate this aspect of Christ's death, that Christ upon the cross and in his death not only took our debt and our punishment, but also applied his righteousness to our accounts, just like money was applied to that gift card It was not earned, it was not deserved. But what do we do with that which has been given to us in the righteousness of Christ? Well, we by faith believe in it. And we now present it to God our Father, the the holy God. And we say to, to, to God, God, this is not my money. This is not my righteousness. I have none. All I have is is this. All I have is Christ. All I have is his righteousness. Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. What does the father say? Does he say, no, you don't have any righteousness? He does. He looks at us and sees that we have no righteousness. He knows that fully. But yet He says, I am satisfied with you because I am ultimately satisfied and pleased and appeased by my son and what he did for you on your behalf. We are counted as righteous, fully paid for because of Christ, the righteous one. What a gift. What a gift because it was not Bought with money like a gift card. No, he was bought with the blood and death of our Lord. Crushed and crucified for us. Surely as bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. That is what we commemorate. That is what we celebrate this night. That is what gives Galatians 2.20 meaning. I've been crucified with Christ. It is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, there is such a, a union between Christ and the church. Between the head and the body, between you as the believer and your Savior, that when he acted, you acted in him. Paul, in fact, uses this phrase. In fact, it's by far his favorite phrase throughout all of his epistles, the phrase of being in Christ. In fact, he uses it over 50 times in his epistles. In Romans chapter 16, he uses it 11 times where he says that these are my fellow workers in Christ. I send my greetings in Christ. It's like the apostle Paul cannot do anything apart from Christ. It's not codependency. It's full dependency upon Christ. And the same is true for us. If you are a believer, you are in Christ. And therefore, we are in Christ in his death. That's what Paul is saying. I have been crucified with Christ. And therefore, Here also is the the good news. Here's the hope. This is the the joy that we also shall be in Christ in his resurrection and in his life. That is what Paul says in Romans chapter six. In fact, Galatians 2.20 is just a synopsis of the entire chapter of Romans chapter six. There he says, for if we have been united with him in death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then just three verses later, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. That's what Paul is saying here. He doesn't just stop with, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, no, I've been crucified with Christ, but I also live And my life that I now live, I live in Christ because Christ lives, so do I. So you hear what Paul is saying. That the old Paul is dead. But the new Paul, the Paul in Christ is very much alive. And that is the same with each and every one of you, dear believer. The old Joel is dead. But the new Joel in Christ is alive. In fact, do you not hear that? Listen to how often Paul uses the first person pronoun in this just single verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In fact, he uses that I or me seven times. In fact, he uses it so much, you might think, is is Paul focusing on himself here? No, it's quite the opposite. He's focusing on Christ. Because like John the Baptist said, I must decrease so he may increase. Because with every I, with every me, he parallels it with Christ. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ. And the life I now live, I live by faith in Christ, who loved himself, or loved me and gave himself, Christ gave himself for me. You see the correlation. I equals Christ. The Son of God equals me. That's very much identity language, isn't it? If you want to know what your identity is, your identity is Christ. Period. Sinclair Ferguson recently asked and was asked in an interview, what advice would he give to young people these days?" He says this: "If you grasp what your identity in Christ is, you'll find that simplifies and clarifies your life and you'll stand out more and more from your contemporaries who are not Christians because they're being told today, I have no idea who you are. You have no idea who you are. You have to decide. You have to find your own identity. Ferguson says this, but if you know your Christ, that you belong to him, you know that everything you do has purpose, it'll allow you to cope with all that comes your way. That's good advice far beyond that for young people, isn't it? It's for all of us. And so as we come to the table this night, we need to understand a few things. And the first is, do you understand your identity? That your identity indeed is Christ. I equals Christ. Christ equals me because Christ is so much greater than I am. That I belong to Christ. And Christ by his grace belongs to me and that I cannot be separated from him. I cannot be split apart from him more than the persons of the Godhead could be separated or split apart from themselves. And therefore the father sees me as the son as holy and as righteous and as perfect as he is, that I am as fully satisfying and as fully pleasing as the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as the Father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, he looks on you and says, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. John Bunyan says, every Christian possesses a mirror. One side of the mirror is the law where we see ourselves and all our flaws and all of our sin. And it is so terrible, it's so dreadful that it has us to, to turn the mirror away from us in disgust. But he says when we flip it over, the other side, the reflection we see is of the Son of God in all of his perfection and all of his beauty. That is true, isn't it? That simultaneously we are sinner and saint. We are wretch and righteous all in one. And so if that is truly our identity, are we living out that identity, the reality of being in Christ, knowing that we are dead to sins? Or are we living in the flesh or in ourselves or in the world? As we'll hear this Sunday, as one of my favorite theologians once said, Christ left his burial garments behind. So too, if we are dead in Christ, we are to leave our garments of the flesh, the old man behind. That is what Romans, again, 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For those who have died, have died to sin, so as to be set free. We live not in the bondage of sin, so we should not return to it. Rather, live in the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus. Live for Christ, for his purpose, for his kingdom, for his glory. Do your labors and your work and your efforts to demonstrate what team you belong to, what jersey you wear, that we belong to Jesus' team. And that is greater than any other allegiance that we would have, that our first allegiance would be to Christ. Third and finally, do you understand that all that Paul says in Galatians 2.20 comes from love? I greatly appreciate, and hopefully you do as well, that in the midst of all of this theological language of substitutionary atonement with union with Christ, with identity in Christ, what is it that he roots it all in? He roots it in the love of God. He says that it is by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. God loved us because he loved us. There's no other reason than that. No other reason that he would do what he has done than for the reason of love. And the extent of that love is overwhelming. It's amazing. We will never be able to plummet the depths of it because it is infinite. And yet it gives the purpose to this night and to this service. Why did he do it? He did it out of love. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I loved you. And it is out of that love that we in return love one another. All aspects of our theology should lead us to love Christ and love our neighbor more. If it does not, then we need to re-examine our theology. Let me end tonight with this story, hopefully a story that illustrates what I've tried to say. It's about Pastor R.G. Lee of Memphis, Tennessee, who took a group to Israel several years ago now. And it was his first trip to Israel And they went on all of the significant tours and made all the significant stops of the the life of Christ and the things that you would want to see you all in Israel, one of which was that of Golgotha, the place where Jesus was supposedly crucified. And one of his members on the tour looked at that place and then said to the pastor, Isn't it incredible? To which Pastor Lee says, I know, I know, I've been here before. And the person said, well, I thought this was your your first time. And with a grin on his face, Pastor Lee responded, it is. But I was here 2,000 years ago when Christ died. I was in Christ as he died for sins. He died for me. And I died to sin. That is the spirit of this night, isn't it? That even though it happened 2,000 years ago, its reality is so present to us that it is as if it happened this very night. For I've been crucified with Christ, and it is an I no longer that lives, but Christ that lives in me. But the life that I live, I live in faith in the Son of God, Loved me and gave himself for me. Amen.